Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, chapter 1, the very beginning of the story of the New Testament, the New Covenant. If you don't have a Bible, you may want to grab a pew Bible right in front of you. You you can turn over to page 807 in that Bible, and you can find the text where we're going to be this morning. Now, before we open up the text and look at it, I do want to make one announcement to you. That is this Thursday is our candlelight Christmas Eve service, and we encourage you to come. And as we share together um, the Word of God, we're going to sing some Christmas carols together. Our elders will be leading us through the five candles of the Advent wreath as we've come to understand it and reading Scripture. And then we'll conclude our service together by sharing the Lord's Supper communion together on this Christmas Eve. We try to keep that service to less than an hour so it doesn't interrupt maybe your other family plans. Well, again, we're going to be in math. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 1 uh, this morning in a message I've entitled An Unexpected Christmas. An Unexpected Christmas. Now, if you've lived any life whatsoever, you know things don't always go according to plan, right? Plans get interrupted, plans change. And this is particularly true at Christmas time. We have things that we plan for Christmas, whether they're meals or whether there's get-togethers or parties or events, and things just don't go according to plan. There's Christmas expectation, and then there's Christmas reality. Now, this week, I had our crack research team at Lookout Valley Baptist Church scour the interwebs for some examples, that means me, of Christmas expectations versus Christmas reality. I want to show you a few of these that I found. First of all, this may be your baby's first Christmas, and you may have this expectation of this idyllic Christmas photo of baby's first Christmas with the glistening lights around the tree, but here's Christmas reality. Ah! Right? Or maybe you don't have kids, and maybe you're trying to get that idyllic, adorable photo with your pet, with your dog. Let me get a selfie with Fido, right? This is the Christmas expectation Here's the Christmas reality, a hind leg to the face. Or maybe this Christmas, like most people, you're going to try your hand at baking. Baking may not be your thing, but you've decided, you know what, I'm going to Pinterest some cakes. I'm going to look for some beautiful Christmas decorated cakes that I can make. Maybe you're going to make a Christmas tree like this. This is Christmas expectation. Here's Christmas reality. Not quite the way you planned. And then finally, you know, as we approach Christmas, especially when we have younger children, we try to find the perfect gifts and we go through the research and we make the orders and we hope that they're just going to be filled with joy and excitement as they open their presents on Christmas. Here's Christmas reality. Kids are not always cooperative, are they? I love the fact that those three kids are literally spelling out the word joy as they scream bloody murder. Now, if we were to go back a year ago, 12 months from this Sunday before Christmas, and you were to get some type of an insight into what 2020 was going to be like. If you were to get some indication of what was just around the corner in March of 2020, you probably wouldn't believe it. No way what we've endured as a country, as the world, will happen. But it happened. This is certainly a Christmas we didn't expect. I just spoke with a senior adult member of our church yesterday. And he told me through tears, this will be the first Christmas I won't be spending with my daughter because of the pandemic. Christmas expectations. This is certainly an unexpected Christmas. Well, that very first Christmas, 
of all Christmases was the most unexpected Christmas as it came to that very first Christmas couple. And here's the thing. Sometimes the biggest unexpected events actually bring the biggest blessings. Have you found that to be true? I know it's true in my own life. This week as I was thinking about it and kind of meditating on it, I thought about one particular unexpected surprise in our family, and that is my daughter, Amber. We've got five children. All five of my children are glorious gifts and blessings from the Lord. But Amber in particular, she's a smart, intelligent, hardworking young lady, 19 years old. She was a complete and total surprise. She's the 1% effectiveness or uneffectiveness of birth control they tell you about. She was a surprise. Anybody else in here have a surprise baby? Yeah. Do your children know they were a surprise? She was a surprise. But with that unexpected surprise comes a glorious blessing. But there's nothing like Christmas <laughs> with all of its heightened expectations to remind us that we are out of control. We don't control what happens to us, around us, in us, through us. And it's true for everyone, especially Mary and Joseph. Because if anything qualifies as an unexpected Christmas, it's that first Christmas. I mean, I can't think of a more unexpected way for God to come in Jesus to the world through a virgin birth and conception, born in a cattle stall in the backside of a backwater town named Bethlehem, and a feed trough for cattle as the crib for the Savior. Completely unexpected. But the prophet God would use in the Old Testament to describe much of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do, the prophet Isaiah he foretold some 735 years before Jesus exactly what we can expect in the unexpected. Notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 55, verse 8. In fact, I want us to read this scripture together with our best Sunday before Christmas voice. Let's read this together. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. What is God essentially saying here? God is essentially saying you think you've got me figured out? You don't have me figured out. You think you know what I'm going to do or how I'm going to do it? No, you don't have a clue what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. But the problem for us really, I think, is because we are so familiar with the Christmas story, because we're so familiar with all the trappings of Christmas and all the events surrounding Christmas, we have somewhat lost the shock value of Advent. We've lost the shock value. This is a tense drama happening here between real people that's going on. In fact, a lot of times we just look at Christmas kind of like a precious moment's moment. Look at those two individuals there. Do they look stressed at all? Do they look like they're enduring any kind of hardship? But here's the deal. I want you to imagine Joseph engaged, betrothed to Mary, his fiance comes to him one day and says, Joseph, I need to tell you something. I'm pregnant. And Joseph knows, ain't no way I'm the dad. Can you imagine the flood of emotion that would come over Joseph in that instant? In that instant, he would feel feelings of betrayal, rejection, sadness, regret, which would probably transition to anger, what? You're pregnant? This is what this passage we're looking at this morning 
describes. Joseph is blindsided by this news, but this unexpected surprise to Joseph would actually bring unexpected blessing. So as we look at the Christmas story this morning, hopefully with some fresh eyes, I want to see how God brought about the greatest unexpected blessing through this unexpected Christmas with Mary and Joseph. And I mentioned earlier, the, the overarching verse today is this, your ways are not my ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. We're going to see how God's thoughts, God's ways, God's patterns emerge in this Christmas story in their lives and also in our lives as well. Three things I want us to notice this morning. First of all, number one, God interrupts my plans. God interrupts my plans. Like it or not, big plans, small plans. Long-term plans, short-term plans. God will often interrupt our plans. This is exactly what happened to Joseph on that very first Christmas. Notice in your Bibles or on the screen, verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Here's what the Bible says. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, I want us to linger on this verse for just a moment because I don't think Matthew really could have packed more of a punch into one single solitary verse than he did right here. Think about it from Joseph's perspective again. It could have read this way. Once upon a time, kaboom, Joseph got flattened. Once upon a time, pow, the bottom fell out of Joseph's life. We need to lay aside our familiarity with the story and just think about what it was like for Joseph in verse 18 of his life. He doesn't know the rest of the story. He doesn't know how it's going to turn out. He, doesn't, he has limited information. From his perspective, my fiance is pregnant, and there's only one logical explanation. The Bible doesn't tell us even if, if Mary told Joseph whether or not she had been visited by an angel. Likely she did. She may have tried to explain it. The Holy Spirit is the one who caused me to become pregnant, to be conceived. Mary just says, I was visited by an angel, perhaps. What would Joseph's response be? Right. I'm pregnant, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Right. And this baby that's inside my womb, he's going to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Right. How is Joseph feeling in this moment? It's not like the paintings depict that once Mary became pregnant, all of a sudden, this glow of a halo and aura just kind of followed her around everywhere. This is real life. He's completely shocked. Mary's not only pregnant with child, but she's totally lost it. She's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. And the idyllic vision that Joseph had for his life, the idyllic vision he had for his marriage, for his family, exploded, gone. And this brings us to a reality I want us to see here, and over, it's repeated over and over in the Scripture. Look at this next slide. God often interrupts us in order to use us. And that's kind of a difficult truth to come around, but it's true here in the Scripture, and it's true here in Joseph's life, and it'll be true in your life. God often interrupts us where we are in order that he might use us. Now, I want you to think about what we've studied the last 12 months here at Lookout Valley, the book of Genesis. We see this over and over again. God interrupts in order to use. Think about Abram, the patriarch, as God interrupts his life, here he is living high in Ur of the Chaldees. 
He's, it's, it's probably the most cosmopolitan city of the ancient Near East at the time. And God interrupts his life and says, hey, Abram, I want you and your wife, Sarai, to move away from here, to go to a land. I'll show you eventually where you're going. The uh, only thing I can tell you about is, is there's some not so nice people there. Uh, other than that, they're going to think your wife is, well, she's pretty cute. You're going to have some problems there. When you get there, you're going to have several decades of barrenness, no child, And then when you finally do have a child, there are going to be difficulties and complications there. Eventually, though, Abraham, trust me, you're going to be the father of a great nation. You're going to bless all the peoples of the world. Of course, you'll never see that come to fruition. What does Abraham say? Sure, let's go. God often interrupts us in order to use us. Think of Abram's great-grandson, Joseph, who we just finished studying about for 13 weeks. Joseph eventually becomes the prime minister of the nation of Egypt. He eventually becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh, and God uses him to not only save his family through seven years of deep famine, but save the nation of Egypt and all the known world. But that didn't happen by accident. How did he get there? Well, he was betrayed by his jealous brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery. Then eventually he wound up in prison. All of this winding process, God interrupted Joseph's plans so that he might put him in a position to use him. This is the same thing happening here with the Joseph of the New Testament centuries later. And think about it. If God interrupts Abram's life, Joseph in Genesis' life, the Joseph of the New Testament, will he not interrupt our lives as well? Interrupt our plans and what we want? Why? Why does he do that? Because here's the thing. When things are going great, when the skies are blue, the birds are singing, prosperity is happening, it's easy for God to lose our attention. But when he interrupts our life, that's when he has our undivided attention. I can look on every interruption in my life, even the catastrophes that I've walked through, and look back and see, man, that's when I was focusing on the Lord the most. That's when he was speaking the deepest to my soul. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we'd fully admit that many of the interruptions that we have in our lives, they're a direct result of either our own sin or the sin of those around us. But even in those moments, even in the results and consequences of our own errors and mistakes and flaws, God will still work those things out for our good and for his glory. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Now back to the Joseph of Christmas. Here he is on the cusp of the greatest miracle the world would ever see, and how is he doing? Again, I think he's crushed, betrayed, confused, angry, jealous. Now, if we had a time machine, we could go back and we could tell him, hey, it's all going to work out, okay? Don't worry. You're going to be the stepfather of the Savior of the world. But if he knew the script, where would the trust be? Where would the opportunity to grow be? Where would be the opportunity to demonstrate courage, nobility, faithfulness, grace, even hope in the face of adversity? He wouldn't be there at all. So Joseph now is to respond with the limited amount of information he has. My fiance is pregnant and it's not my child. So what is he determined to do? Well, Joseph's initial response to this news is seen in verse 19. Look at verse 19 in our Bibles. 
and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. I want you in your Bible, or maybe if you grabbed an outline, circle those two words, just man. The Greek word that's translated just there can also be translated righteous. He's a righteous man. Now, this phrase or this term, just man or righteous man, it's really a technical term here in first century Judaism. This term was called by the Hebrews, the Hebrew word for righteous, which is sadiq. What is sadiq? Sadiq was a title. It was a designation of somebody who was revered, somebody who was trusted, somebody who was admired in the community, in the world, a righteous man. What did a sadiq mean? Somebody, listen, who adhered strictly to the law of God. This is Joseph. Joseph is a sadiq in his town of Nazareth. In his village, he was one who was seen as a righteous man, someone who obeyed the commands of the Torah, the Old Testament law. So what did that mean? Well, that meant that Joseph would never, ever be caught eating something that was forbidden to be eaten in the Old Testament law. Uh, that meant for Joseph as a sadiq, as a righteous man in Nazareth, is that he would never open his carpentry shop up on the Sabbath to earn a few extra shekels for the week. No, he was a righteous man. He was admired for his adherence to the law. Now, what did that mean? It presented a problem for him, a big problem, because guess what the law, guess what the Torah said should be done for a engaged woman who is found to be pregnant? Here's what the law says in Deuteronomy 22, 21. It says this, Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death. What was the result of an out-of-wedlock pregnancy in the Torah? Execution by stoning. Death. And so Joseph is in absolute agony here. When Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1 that he didn't want to put her to shame, that's a polite way of saying he didn't want to see her executed. He's not planning on leading the parade of men in the village to her father's doorstep that they might stone her to death. That's option A. So reluctantly, he decides on option B. And in the first century Judaism, this was a legal option, and that was divorce. And think about it. If you're betrothed in their legal system, it's much different than our engagement. He couldn't just go to Mary and say, hey, I want the ring back. You're pregnant. It didn't work that way. They were in a legally binding agreement, so they had to go through the process of divorce in the courts. And I want you to think about this. In the very middle of this Christmas story, we see a very modern word, divorce. Next time you look at a nativity, a picture or a figurines, I want you to think about this. There was a time when that Joseph said to that Mary, I want a divorce. How applicable is that to the situations we have here in 2020? And it's at this very point of conflict, at this point of uncertainty, that we see this unexpectedness happen. Friends, these are not fairy tale people. This is real life with real problems. And that leads us to the second principle. Not only does God interrupt my plans, but I can look for God's transformative work when God invades my problems. The tough thing about life's 
interruptions, difficulties, catastrophes, they don't come with an instruction manual that's specific to the issue. I don't know how long it took Joseph to get clarity on what was going on here. It could have been hours, days, maybe even weeks he's trying to stew and think through this. But then God invades his problem. Look at our, as we pick up the reading in verse 20. The Bible says this, but as he considered these things, I want us to stop right there and maybe circle that word considered. The Greek word there means literally to circle in the mind, to revolve in your head. He's chewing on this. He's thinking through this. He's considering. He's pondering. Can you relate to that? Maybe there's been a problem, a situation, a conflict, and you're just stewing on it. You're just considering it, pondering. Let it circle in your mind to try to figure out, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Just waiting on the Lord's answer. Well, after Joseph considers these things for some time, the answer does come. Look as verse 20 continues. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, I think on one hand, Joseph was probably marvelously relieved. Oh my goodness, Mary isn't crazy. She's not off her rocker. She did get visited by an angel. On the other hand, I think humanly, he's got to be thinking, did that just really happen? (laughs) Did I really just get visited by it? I mean, it was a dream, and the dreams are often weird. Did this really just happen to me? But what was the first thing that the angel said to him? He said, do not fear. Fear not to take Mary to be your wife. Why would the angel tell Joseph to not be afraid? What would he have been afraid of? The Greek word there is phobia. What would his phobia be? What would he be fearful of? Well, I think he'd be fearful, one of all, one, first of all, as a sadiq, as a righteous man, he wanted to strictly obey the commands of God. He wanted to be uh, in, not in violation of the law of God or offend God. Further, I think he would likely be fearful of losing his hard-earned reputation in his community as a sadiq, as a righteous man. And Joseph knows there's not a chance that anybody in town is going to believe this story. If he takes her into his house as his wife, what did it mean for him? Embarrassment. Scandal. It meant questions. It meant his position as a righteous Sadiq in the village of Nazareth was gone. I think Joseph is still kind of wrestling with this decision when the angel reveals something else in verse 21. Notice what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So the angel tells Joseph, not Mary, Joseph, here's what you're to name the boy. I think if you've ever had children and you've struggled with what you're going to name your child, this would be a welcomed thing to have an angel of the Lord tell you, name him this. Oh, good. We were wondering what we're going to name him. He says, name him Jesus. Now, this name Jesus It's a Greek rendering of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. So Joshua is the same, exactly the same as Jesus. So the angel tells Joseph, name him Yeshua. Name him Joshua. Now what does Yeshua mean? The name Joshua. What does it mean? It means Yahweh saves. Yeshua, Yahweh saves. And here's what's interesting. There's an 
unexpected twist that the angel puts at the end of that. Name him Yeshua, Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. You see, the first century Jew believed, yes, God would send a Yeshua. God would send a Joshua. God would send a Savior, a Messiah. But the Messiah they were expecting was to be something like the Joshua of the Old Testament. You remember the Joshua of the Old Testament? He took Moses' place. He was a general. He was the commander of the armies of God. He led the conquest into the promised land, decimating their enemies and setting them up as the nation of Israel in the promised land. This is who they were looking for. They were looking for another Joshua, a military leader to come in and to wipe out the Romans who had occupied the promised land for so long and for so much. But the angel says, no, 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 no. This Yeshua, this Joshua, is coming to save his people from their sins. You see, because the angel understood something that I think we need to understand six weeks after a presidential election. What's that? The human problem is not bad government. The human problem is our sinful nature. So the Messiah came to them not to bring regime change but to bring heart change. Because the worst dictator you will ever face in your life, the cruelest despot who will bring out edicts and proclamations is not the county mayor who has extended the mask mandate. Not the one sitting in the governor's mansion or in the White House. The cruelest dictator you will ever have to deal with is you. You are your worst enemy. Your own sin nature. Your own lostness. Your own selfishness. Your own ego. Christ came to save you from you. He says he's coming to save his people from their sins. Not from other people's sins. Circumstances around us, they change all the time. We don't need a new government. We don't need new leaders. We don't need a new workplace, a new environment, new family, new administration, new spouse. What you need is a new you. You need to be delivered from your sin. Now watch what Matthew says next in the narrative. Matthew, the gospel writer, presents the real facts of this event. Look at verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, the Messiah will not just be a godly man, a righteous man, an inspired man, a sadiq man. The Messiah will be the God-man. Emmanuel, God with us. Here again, Matthew is quoting Isaiah I mentioned earlier, written 735 years before the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary. Think about it. God has been planning this process of a virgin birth of the Messiah for seven centuries, actually longer than that, from before the foundation of the world. This whole plan was in place. He is in complete control of a situation that seems completely out of control. Have you ever looked at your world and thought, this is out of control? (laughs) You ever? 
What is happening to our country? What is happening to our world? It is out of control. No, it's in complete control. God is in charge. You see, and the Messiah was coming in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of a scandal of epic proportions, and God already knew ahead of time what he was going to do and how he was going to do it and who he was going to do it through. And that leads to the next principle and the takeaway I want us to see from the second point. Number two, our problems come into perspective when interpreted through God's word. Here's what's interesting. God didn't actually solve any of Joseph's problems. He didn't remove any of his issues. Just the opposite. He just gave him the word through which he was to interpret his problems and his situation. Isaiah pens this prophecy in which Israel was to hope. 735 years go by. This whole big plan, God's been planning, not just seven centuries, but since before the foundation of the world. And as he executes his plan of salvation, he lets all of two people know about it, Mary and Joseph. That's it. A little later, Mary will share with her cousin what's going on. But that's it. I love this. If it were us, let's be honest, we'd have a rollout plan that's a little more detailed and extravagant than what's happening here. Something of this mag- magnitude, oh, we've got to think up a marketing strategy. Oh, what can we do to get the word out? What can we do to plaster it on the, the walls and on the ceilings and so everybody knows? God looks at it wonderfully relaxed and says, yeah, two people, that'll be good. Oh, I'll let some shepherds know a little later on, but, you know, nobody listens to shepherds anyway. They're a little, you know, scary. Then at some time later, the, the magi from the east are going to come. Well, practicing magic, that was an abomination in Israel. Nobody's going to listen to magicians, much less foreigners. We don't listen to foreigners. So God just lets the ripple effects of his son's birth grow and spread until finally the promise will be it will reach the remotest corners of this planet. It will come to a point when every tribe, every tongue, every people group will name and know Jesus and will be around that throne. The truth about Jesus spreads through God's word and through the presence of his, penetra- of his spirit as he penetrates one heart at a time. So question is, why would God send his son in this way? without the fanfare, in the midst of confusion and uncertainty. What's our overarching concept and theme? His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So here's the thing. If you can't seem to make heads or tails of what God's doing right now in your life, in your relationships, in your world, in your occupation, take heart. He's in control. He's up to something. Maybe not something you'd expect or not even something you would welcome, but something that ultimately is going to be for his glory and for your good. So let's recap. God will interrupt my plans. God will invade my problems. But here's the third thing as we move towards the conclusion. God illuminates my path. When you choose to walk in obedience to the word of God, he will illuminate for you his path. Now, it may not, it's not going to be every step of the way. You're not going to know the beginning to the end but he will illuminate the path for which he has for you to walk. And in that, friends, listen, it's a demonstration 
of his grace. God's grace working in us and God's grace working through us to impact others around us. And the proof of this is really how we eventually respond to God's work. Is his grace really taking hold? I remember Joseph is seeking some answers. He he wants to try to understand some things. The angel actually brought him some answers. Now he has to make some choices, some hard choices. What's he going to do with the information he's been given? Is he going to walk the path that's just been illuminated to him? Well, look at verse 24. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did. Those are two small words, but are huge words. He did it. He obeyed. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So how does the path of obedience to God that Joseph determines to walk, how does that demonstrate grace? Well, think about it. Joseph is gracious as he's laying aside what may be his reputation, He's laying aside what may be his own plans and desires, status as a sadiq, as a righteous man. And no one would ever come to the conclusion on their own that, oh yeah, Mary and Joseph got married because the Lord made her miraculously pregnant as a virgin and she was completely pure when they got married. No one would ever naturally come to that conclusion when they see seventh month pregnant Mary five months after the wedding. What would they conclude? One of two things. Moses, uh, excuse me, Mary and Joseph were intimate before they were married. Or two, Mary's not a good little girl. This was what they would accuse them of. And it's amazing that this accusation actually followed Jesus around his whole ministry. On one occasion in John chapter 8, the gospel records Jesus teaching and he's speaking and he's conversing with some religious leaders. Of course, his words confounded the religious leaders. They had no answer for what Christ was saying. So what do they do? They bring up this old accusation again. Look at what John 8, 41 says. They said to Jesus, we were not born of sexual immorality. What are they saying in 2020 language? We aren't bastards. You are. This accusation followed not only Jesus, but Mary and Joseph their whole lives. So this is a huge step that Joseph is taking. He's concluding that righteousness, sadiq, it goes deeper than just obeying every letter of the law. True righteousness means reflecting God's grace. We see Joseph do that because he's willing to lay aside the option of divorce and marries her. He's willing to accept her child as his own son, and he will raise that boy as his own, becoming his adopted father. He didn't consummate the marriage until after Jesus was born. He had to wait for their honeymoon. In all of these ways and more, Joseph was willing to lay aside his will, his prerogative, his desires and wishes and partner with God in what God was doing in a miraculous way. So, was Joseph a righteous man after all? (laughs) Yes. But it wasn't because of his ironclad devotion to the letter of the law. He was a righteous man because he was willing to enter into a holy scandal to partner with God in what he was doing. He was willing to not throw the book at Mary, but to throw his lot in with Mary. 
And so watch this. While Jesus would come to provide the grace of God, his heavenly Father, he had an incredible example in his earthly adopted Father. I wonder, when Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders with the woman caught in adultery, he had to respond to her there. She should be stoned to death. I wonder if Jesus thought about the example of his adopted father. Here was the letter of the law regarding mom, but dad showed grace. And keep this in mind, this true story, it doesn't end like a fairy tale. And everybody lived happily ever after. No, there was a lot of hardship that followed Joseph, followed Mary, and especially Jesus, which really communicates something to us as we obediently plunge into God's will and God's purposes. It doesn't mean a bed of roses. It doesn't mean life's going to be easy. In fact, look at this next principle that we're going to conclude with. God never calls us where his grace cannot keep us. God will call us down some very unexpected paths through some hard, difficult situations but he will never call us to where his grace cannot keep us. And I don't say this glibly. I say this knowing many difficult circumstances that some of you are walking through, that people in our congregation are walking through. I know stories of pain and hardship. I know stories of illness and disease. Just yesterday, I talked with a man in our church who just got cancer diagnosis. Stories of loss, defeat, stories of betrayal, rejection, even abuse, which I am, by the way, helpless to solve. I'm helpless as your pastor. But it's in those moments we see the power of God's grace revealed. It's in those moments we know His grace is sufficient. He never calls us where his grace will not keep us. Well, before we close, I want us to go back to the story, this unexpected Christmas. God sent the answer to everything that's broken in the world. God sent the answer, the greatest and most unexpected blessing of all through Jesus. You see, when the angel came to Joseph, not only did he give Joseph answers to the situation he found himself in. He gave Joseph the gospel. He said, here's the good news, Joseph. This child will save his people from their sins. Let me ask you, is there anyone here besides me who needs to be saved from his sins? I do. I need a savior from my sins. I need a savior from my self, from my ego, from my dictator that resides within my heart. He came to save us from our sins. And this very same Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who came and caused the physical person of Jesus to be conceived within Mary, this same Holy Spirit, through the miraculous work of what's called regeneration, causes the Holy Spirit to bring a new birth in us whereby we can respond with faith and obedience. We can respond in repentance of our sins. 
This is the good news of the gospel. That though we are separated from God because of our sinfulness, a holy God who is a righteous judge who should judge us for our sinfulness, he's remedied the situation by sending his own son, perfect and holy, spotless. He died on that cross in our place and was resurrected from the dead to give us new life. I don't know what you're looking forward to for this Christmas, but there's not a greater gift you can receive than the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's no better time to respond to God's gift than Christmas, than today. A relationship with the Creator because of all that Christ has done. That leads to my last thought. The greatest Christmas gift you can experience is the one only Jesus can give. Namely, forgiveness from your sins.